0: Hello and welcome to another OU Law School podcast. We are back from the summer holidays and ready with another episode about our research. In this episode, I will be talking with John Cubbon, who is a deployable civilian expert with the UK Stabilization Unit. He recently gave an interesting talk on his work while at the UN, and especially at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. He has a wealth of experience, but like all good lawyers, is bound by confidentiality, so he cannot share certain things beyond generalities. Also, we've had a little bit of a microphone problem in this episode, so there are certain things uh, missing from this talk. Once again, I would like to remind you of our upcoming celebration of the 50 years of DOU. We have something special planned that will start in the next couple of weeks, so watch this space. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Um, Today I'm speaking with John Cubbon, who is a barrister, and he's a deployable civilian expert with the UK Stabilization Unit. Um, uh, Just a a, a general caveat and uh, sort of a disclaimer. Um, When John talks, he's talking in his own personal capacity and not uh, representing the views of the, the UK Stabilization Unit. Um, All right. So, John, you had a very interesting talk today here at the Open University, Um, and you talked about the effectiveness, um, and you talked about the impact of the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, Um, and it's a topic that is very near and dear to me, but you draw this talk from 20 years of experience um, in UN... Uh, missions both peacekeeping and working for the ICTY and working for um, on international criminal issues in Kosovo before. So can you talk to us first about a little bit about that background um, and how did you start and get into the ICTY?
1: Yes, well I joined the UN in 1995. I worked for a small office working in peacekeeping in Sarajevo but after the Dayton Peace Accords uh, in late 1995, uh, I moved to the UN mission in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where eventually I worked on the judicial system. Uh, And I was able to get an understanding of the way the legal and judicial systems operated in the former Yugoslavia. To begin with in, in on MIB I worked on the police, uh, mm-hmm. I advised the International Police Task Force on the local law and the relevant international law that in fact had been incorporated into the local law right. by the Dayton Agreement but
0: at that stage people were still working out its implications. So it must have been a very exciting time to, to be present in Bosnia because after the conflict um, as you said international and local are sort of mixed um, so can you give us some example of what what was at stake there
1: well I think probably the, the best example really concerns uh, police detention mm-hmm. the, uh, the old Yugoslav procedural criminal procedure code mm-hmm. um, was actually not bad at all from a human rights perspective uh, you couldn't point to specific, to much that was right. in violation, clearly in violation of uh, of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. But there was a bit of a black hole mm-hmm. from the point of arrest to the point of being brought before um, an investigating judge. And that black hole was something that uh, needed to be addressed. And one did, I do remember, that coming up as an issue mm-hmm. uh, uh, and there were other issues as well. The implications of the European Convention on Human Rights in Bosnia uh, were not obvious to people immediately. A lot hadn't been translated into into Bosnian, and uh, the the law hadn't been adapted so that it was consistent with it. Right.
0: Um, Just so to give a bit more context, because I'm from Macedonia, so that's former Yugoslavian Republic. So this detention sort of loophole, black hole, wherever it is, it was so obvious that it it was put in the Macedonian constitution in 1992 of specific time limits of how long you can hold somebody before you brought them in front of a judge, how long you can keep them in detention for, etc., etc., because it was an important issue. Right, right, right. Right. Um, so from there on, how did you? How did you? How, what's your pathway to? Um, yes. NXT-Y? Well,
1: uh, I was in, as I say, I think towards the end of my time in Bosnia, I worked for the Judicial System Assessment Program in Bosnia, which gave me an understanding of the, the court system, mm-hmm. in Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also to an extent throughout the former Yugoslavia, because to a large extent it was laws that had been promulgated when Bosnia and Herzegovina was part of uh, the Federal Republic that were in force. Uh, And also I got a sense of how, uh, of the judicial culture in a way. Mm -hmm. I then in 1999, uh, in the autumn of 1999, joined UNMIC in Kosovo. And a lot of my work there was directed at the judicial system and the criminal justice system. I spent. I was involved a great deal in the drafting of legislation mm-hmm. and I was also I had a ringside seat in seeing the introduction of international judges and prosecutors to Kosovo uh, which I think was an important part of my experience and, and really allowed me to appreciate the strength of the ICTY mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't my role in that was very slight, but uh, I think I think there are definite lessons to learn from that. Mm-hmm. I think it was a uh, it was the most uh, radical initiative that was taken on in the judicial area in 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 Kosovo, certainly for the time that I was there. And although it had its deficiencies, mm-hmm. uh, it did it was very. On the final analysis, I think it was worthwhile.
0: I can give you a bit of history on that. Because yes. Um, because uh, so UNMIC happened after the 1999 intervention by NATO. Yes. Um, it's a UN mission, and that's the, uh, a very important part. Um, and it was, uh, this was one of the very few times when the UN actually took over governance of a territory. Yes. Uh, and that means that they put in place not just. Troops as peacekeepers, but also civilian personnel, Yes. police officers, yes. not just judges, etc. Yes. So.
1: yes. Well, at the beginning of the mission, there was discussion about how to deal with the criminal justice system. The, in fact, that was probably that was one of the most important aspects of the, the task the Dunmick had. Mm-hmm. What was decided at the beginning was that the police should be international... And the judges should be Kosovar. Mm-hmm. As far as the judges are concerned, what that meant in practice was that almost all of them were Kosovo Albanians. The there were very few Serbs uh, left in the in much of Kosovo. Mm-hmm. They tended to be in enclaves, and those that were would be reluctant or for, for all sorts of reasons to serve as judges under the UN interim administration. Uh, uh, what happened was that it became apparent that in sensitive ethnic cases, mm-hmm. sensitive criminal cases, either arising from the conflict or after the conflict, the, the judges from Kosovo were not able to be impartial. Uh, either, uh, this was either something that they, uh, I mean, this, the reasons were either that they, um, the, the strength of feeling against Serbs right. were, so, uh, were such that they, they weren't able to be, or they were under pressure from mm-hmm. others. It, it became apparent, particularly when there was rioting in Mitrovica in early 2000, this brought it home to the mission that a system in which all the judges were from Kosovo and the police, of course, were international, was not working mm-hmm. uh, it, particularly uh, with cases that uh, involved uh, alleged serb perpetrators. Just to give you an example, the uh, UNMIC police, or indeed uh, KFOR, the military force under NATO, effectively, uh, would arrest someone uh, walking around with a Kalashnikov, uh, bring them before a judge, and the judge would simply release them to go back to doing to the rioting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing was happening. And uh, it was decided that an international judge and an international prosecutor should be appointed to deal with cases in Mitrovica. Later on that year, there was a, a hunger strike by mm-hmm. uh, Kosovo Serb, Serbs who were in detention and due to be brought before judges. Uh, they were demanding, forget exactly what their demands were, they were but they were clearly protesting against the possibility of being tried by uh, kosovo Albanian judges. Mm -hmm. And a promise was made that there would be one international judge on the panel uh, that tried any Kosovo Serb. And this ended the the hunger strike, or or was a factor that ended it. Uh, Then it was discovered that, of course, uh, it wasn't enough to have just one international judge
0: Because it can be overruled.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, And so later in the year, Regulation 2000-64 was uh, promulgated by the Special Representative of the Secretary-General, which allowed either a majority of judges to be international judges to be assigned to a case or a a case to be assigned entirely Mm -hmm. international judges. This was envisaged as a temporary measure but um, it was renewed and renewed and renewed for many years. Uh, it, so, essentially, what you had was responses to crises, uh, in which international judges were increasingly involved to deal with sensitive ethnic cases mm-hmm. that arose from the conflict. And I will, I, I will say something I, I I've said I said in, in the talk I gave this morning, but I think it can't be. Underlined enough, uh, the the fact that the Kosovo Albanians uh, were not uh, completely impartial in those cases, the Kosovo Albanian judges, um, is not something uniquely Kosovo right. or uniquely former Yugoslav. You find it everywhere. Uh, it, these are the sort of cases that judges in every single country in the world find it difficult to be neutral on. If they're involved in a conflict, they've been involved in an armed conflict and they're required to decide a case, uh, one of their boys has been uh, accused of committing war crimes or someone from the other side has, yeah. it's immensely difficult for them to be uh, neutral. So uh, that really made me see the benefits of international judges in a, in, in, in an immediate post-conflict situation. Right.
0: Um, especially since... Those judges, not the international, the, 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 the local ones, they have to continue living on in the same community. So it's very difficult for them to uh, be impartial yes. because they would see it tomorrow on the street that you let such and such go. Yes. It, How could you? That or, uh, is it's very interesting you say you, that. Yeah. I mean...
1: Uh, Albanian—that uh, is precisely what a Kosovo mm-hmm. Albanian judge once said, um, uh, not to me, but right. to, to someone else. Uh, and Kosovo uh, Albanian society is very um, cohesive. Uh, people are afraid of stepping out of line, mm-hmm. and this was—they said, you, "It's all right for you. I have to live here for the next twenty years," and they—they uh, they don't have the. Um, the protection, or the status, or the authority that a judge might have in Western Europe, and that's
0: the, a, a further difficulty yep. that they have. So, how how did you how did you get from Kosovo to the ICTY? Well, I applied
1: for for mm-hmm. positions in uh, ICTY as it, as, as it works in the UN. I applied for a position yep. there, and that was how um, I was. Um, I ended up there, obviously, the fact that I'd been in former Yugoslavia mm-hmm. with um, a knowledge of the system there uh, was, um, w- was um, something that I think was beneficial, even yep. though, of course, the legal system in the ICTY, I mean, the procedural system is completely different.
0: Yes, but that's, um, and that we're going to touch upon that uh, later because it's important to see the ICTY as a, as a- functioning court with its own bureaucracy. Um, um, so the ICTY is is not only completely different from the judicial systems in former Yugoslavia, but it's very different from the judicial systems in most other countries. Um, so can you, can you paint us a picture of, of what the ICT was um, and uh, what type of things that it had to deal with? uh procedurally or uh, um, well first the whole court and then procedurally first yes well
1: it, the the ICTY was unusually for the for a court uh, established by a security council resolution mm-hmm. uh, under chapter 7 which empowers the security council to take action to maintain or restore international peace and security was in established in the Hague and it uh, had uh, judges from all over the world, uh, prosecutors also uh, were appointed as UN staff members. Uh, they tended. There was a tendency for, for the staff at the ICTY to be European, North American, mm-hmm. and Antipodean. Uh, but essentially, though, it, there was a there was a degree um, well, uh, a, a degree, degree of, degree of um, national balance. Uh, Not perfect, but a a degree. Um, So it it, uh, was able to conduct trials uh, of, um, uh, and it very quickly uh, um, homed in on those with the most responsibility Mm -hmm. for uh, atrocities. It tended, it it increasingly did, did, and in fact, um, uh, as a result of a. A decision of the Security Council that they were given, uh, they were given
0: the the, um, uh, the focus. Right. Um, so, so a further elaboration on, on your point. So the ICTY is not only different from what you would normally have as a uh, as a national court. It's also quite different from what you normally have as an international court, because usually the the, the system in mind that you have is a is a state against a state uh, yes. system or, as in the human rights system, an individual versus a state. In here it's it's a prosecutor who represents the international community against perpetrators of crimes that are seen as important um, for the whole international community. So so in that sense it's a whole different ballgame yes. in yes. terms of who, who, who gets to the court uh, and the whole mindset of the court. Yes,
1: the yes. The the accused persons are accused of having violated international law, uh, which um, is the same everywhere, yeah. but as you say, uh, one normally thinks of an international court as a court in which um, uh, a party is
0: explicitly a, a state. state yes yeah. um, so in that sense, it presented some unusual procedural challenges so can can you tell us about about those
1: well, I think uh, the most obvious point to make is that, unlike a criminal court in uh, in any national jurisdiction, it wasn't able to call upon a police service. Yes. That's the, the the fundamental difficulty that it had, and of course it uh, depended on cooperation with with states. At the beginning, there was. Uh, reluctance on the part of the states in the former Yugoslavia to cooperate that changed a bit over time Mm -hmm. largely as a result of uh, pressure from uh, the EU and the US they had carrots uh, uh, to dangle in front of the the governments maybe a bit the government's changed as well but I think uh, I think the the Conditionality that was used mm-hmm. by the international community had an effect.
0: It, it certainly did because it, it prompted a lot of those governments to cooperate with the yes. with the court itself and to start um, uh, handing over people for the the process that went on in The Hague. And that I guess that partly is because by that time the governments were yes um, dangling a lot of carrots from the EU. But they also sort of saw that the court itself had some sort of independence, um in in the sense that they weren't um they weren't there to simply just punish them in that sense. Um
1: yes, I mean I think that that there are um large swathes of opinion in mm-hmm. the former Yugoslavia that see the court as um, hostile to their ethnicity. I mean, that yeah. is that is very clear. I mean, not everyone within partic- particular ethnicity would take that line, but a large swathe, swathe of opinion. Uh, as to whether over time there was increasing acceptance, I'm not sure. There were times when I was surprised by the level of respect that defendants showed, mm-hmm. actually, to the tribunal. Okay. Um, if I could just rem- mention an example, I mean... A, almost a trivial example but one that I that has stayed in my mind uh, at the end of a very lengthy multi-accused trial uh, in which of course the accused all pleaded not guilty Uh, at the sentencing uh, when they were when the findings were read out and the sentences given presiding judge finished it was very interesting some of them bowed Mm -hmm. before they sat down there was a sort of there was a kind of respect. Whether that was something that wasn't present at the beginning, I don't know. But uh, there were some accused, Mil- Milosevic, I think, and Sheschel, who who completely rejected yes, the... Yes, they had a very combative. Yes, uh, uh, rejected uh, the authority of the yeah. tribunal. Uh, others didn't. Maybe, in the final analysis, it was because uh, they felt there was no alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, there was... Uh, uh, you did see uh, shafts of of, of of almost approval mm-hmm. um, of the way it functioned, even if, of course, they uh, w- would not be happy with the, the, the findings.
0: Right. So my personal feeling is that, um, in a way, there was a, a sense that they would receive more justice in front of the ICTY than any other court in the region yes. would give them.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think... Uh, uh, well, I mean they uh, they would um they would get off the hook mm-hmm. completely in certain courts mm-hmm. but anywhere else uh, yes. they wouldn't get a fair no. trial and uh, I mean this is a problem you have everywhere I mean <laughs> I mean uh, one thinks of uh well I mean th- this is a problem one has everywhere
0: and uh, um so as a, as an illustration for instance a lot of people forget Post Nuremberg, and I don't mean the Nuremberg that was done under the London Charter, but the Nuremberg that was done under Control Council Law Number Ten. Yes, yes. That um, there were protests by Germans, and for a long while they said, "Well, these are our heroes." Yes, um, and that um, from those who did not receive the death penalty, they were released within a decade from the from the court from Nuremberg. Um, so the only one that that stayed in prison was. From the original London Charter and that because it was international treaty, they received a, a life sentence and in a certain court in Germany every six months there was a different card changing for that specific specific person in jail um, from Russia and then U.S. and France. And, yes. You know, something like that. Um, so changing attitudes takes time. Um, it's not simply because the court or a court ruled something. But from almost 70 years now, Nuremberg is a is a complete watershed moment in the sense of... Um, so I'm reminded of the book uh, by Jonathan Boas, Stay the Hand of Ven- Vengeance, because uh, the options on the table were, we execute 100,000 Nazis. Um, and it was thanks to uh, uh, the Secretary of State in the US, Stibbons, who pushed for um, actually having an international court? They would try criminals, um, the most heinous, the Nazi crimes, uh, the, the high Nazis uh, uh, officials, so that uh, then Germans, ordinary Germans, could not would not have to live with the taint of World War Two. Right. Yeah. Right. Well,
1: uh, one ideally would want that to apply in the former Yugoslavia. Yeah. I think sadly, there's there's little evidence of that Mm -hmm. it's not completely um the case that that people uh, don't see crimes as the responsibilities of individuals Mm -hmm. and not ethnic groups uh and it's and a lot of people in in all parts of former Yugoslavia fully accept essentially the the findings of the Mm -hmm. tribunal however you do have uh vast majority, well one gets the impression that a, a very considerable number of, of people in each of the countries in the former Yugoslavia, and above all important sections of the media and the political elites, uh, do reject uh, the findings of the tribunal.
0: Yes, um, uh, I'm reminded of what happened after um was it Cheshire who received, uh, a, a sent, uh, a, a finally, a, a judgment from the ICTY um, where there wasn't a finding of genocide. Um, and the Serbian community in Bosnia told it that, well, there, was no, there wasn't a genocide. But on the other hand, that means that they accepted that there was very some very serious crimes that happened and that were perpetrated by them, even though it didn't have the title of genocide there were some very serious crimes against humanity. Um, So those judgments are always touted as sort of a a stick to beat the other community with. But I think over time uh, there's going to be a a recognition that something terrible happened. Right. um, In a way that there wasn't a recognition after World War II um, because of communism and because of... And ideology and the Cold War yeah and the Cold War
1: right uh, though I mean um, uh, no, I mean no I mean I no nation has um, uh, approached the Germans in in their honesty in coming mm-hmm. to terms with the past I mean the, the, the fact now uh, the attitudes of, uh, of modern Germans is um, uh, is is one of um, acceptance and acknowledgement, and, and no other country seems to come close to that. But it took a generation. It took a long time. Yeah. Yes, and uh, so one perhaps shouldn't expect miracles in, mm-hmm. particularly not um, um,
0: in in just a few years. Yep. Yeah. Um, so let's let's go back a little bit to the ICTY, um, not in terms of its effectiveness. But, in terms of how it changed over the years yes, um, um it started off in a very sort of common law, not system but sort of mentality um and it had to quite fast cripple with the reality that uh, the judges who sat there were not all from common law countries yes so how how how, do you, how did it deal with that can you can you tell me well the the Rules of Procedure and Evidence are
1: only about 100 pages, and mm-hmm. it's not very lengthy. Uh, the case law associated with it doesn't quite have the binding force that mm-hmm. case law does in uh, a common law jurisdiction. Uh, so for, to start with, it, there wasn't a huge amount to for a judge to have to come, come to grips with. Right. Uh, a, a, a judge from, um, appointed to the tribunal who understandably wouldn't have been familiar with the rules of procedure and evidence uh, could quickly be, be in a position to apply it mm-hmm. so I think, uh, I think that the, the the fact that you have judges from all over the world and the fact that the rules of procedure and evidence were predominantly common law inspired wasn't too much of a problem and the judges have support, they have right. time. It, it's, uh, it's something that's manageable.
0: Mm-hmm. So can you tell me more about the, the, the type of legal support that the judges yes. Un, uh, receive?
1: Yes, well, uh, this, is, this is something that, that is different in scale from mm-hmm. what you have in a domestic jurisdiction. Uh, judges will have legal a single legal assistant, but the in the ICTY each judge will have his own his or her own legal assistant but in addition to that there would be um, legal um, officers who were serving the the whole uh, trial bench mm-hmm. uh, if if there was a trial or the uh, the appeal bench if there was a, an appeal so uh you you had uh you you had a, a number of people uh providing uh Right. Well, I think what's important to, to say is that more legal officers mm-hmm. supporting judges than you'd have in a domestic court. In many domestic jurisdictions, a judge might have a part-time lawyer in training mm-hmm. or, or, or even a full-time lawyer, but at a relatively junior level and just one,
0: right. and
1: many judges don't have anything. In the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, uh, at a trial there would be several lawyers working full-time providing support to the three bench Mm -hmm. uh, panel and on appeal you'd also have a very considerable degree of support for the judges.
0: So this goes back to my research that I I did aeons ago. Um, and I can I can surely attest that some of the things that they need to needed to research because, the sub, especially the substantive part, there were only there was only one article in the statute uh, of the ICTY that, that just listed the crimes, but not the sort of the elements of the crimes. So the judges had to go into national systems and, and research the, the criminal provisions of forty or so countries, um, and to see how that was dealt with in those national jurisdictions and then apply it, sort of transpose it into the ICTY. So that, that took a lot of time, that took a lot of effort and certainly qualified lawyers um, to do it. But there's another aspect of the ICTY which they needed help, which was with um, the, as you said, outreach, but also with the diplomacy part because...
1: Right. Well, that was something that the... President's Mm -hmm. Office did, essentially. I was never uh, part of the President's Office, but the President's Office did have a representational function, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, and the President would present reports to the Security Council on the work of the Tribunal. Uh, and, And that is something that is not found much in a domestic jurisdiction. Um, it's certain well, obviously not a, a diplomatic function, no. but a representational function. Uh, you do find that, uh, in a domestic jurisdiction that president of a court will have a yes representational function. Um, yes,
0: but there's also the idea, also uh, the, the idea of, of budgeting, right? Who gets to do the budget and submit yes. it to the to the UN Security Council because yes. there's supposed to be an appropriation. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: that as well. Yeah. That as well, and that. Uh, was a function that uh, the president was... president's office. Yes. Because
0: I I would originally think that that would fall under the registrar, but I guess... uh, To
1: some extent, yes, mm
0: -hmm. yes. Okay.
1: I've forgotten exactly how it worked, but
0: yes. Um, Definitely, and the office of the... Because they are the face of the court, as it were, so they also do have other types of responsibilities when it comes to this representation. Uh, and also the the personality of the president can put a stamp on the court, mm-hmm. uh, especially that was the case with uh, the first president Cassese, for, who was a, a major influence in setting up the ICTY the way it uh, the way it looks today. Because we're getting close to our um, to our podcast, um, can you tell me what did you do after the um, ICTY? Well, I I
1: worked I've worked on. Uh, judicial reform and support for judiciaries mm-hmm. in uh, in ukraine and the occupied very briefly actually in the occupied palestinian territories uh, also i provided i was a an advisor and trainer on international humanitarian law mm-hmm. for the uh, malian armed forces which oh. which does tie in with obviously the work <laughs> yes, at the ICY. Do
0: Well, thank you very much for the talk. Um, It's obvious that we can spend a whole lot of time discussing both the ICTY and your other work because it spans 20 years. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the the answers that you're going to give me is uh, it's confidential (laughs) because one of the things that when international lawyers work, a lot of the issues are confidential. So I want to say thank you very much um, for this talk uh, and I hope we see you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and I hope you will come back for the next one. As ever, you can find more about us on the Law School's website. Check out the show notes below as well. Don't forget about our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday coming in the next few weeks. The music in the background is Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.